I didn't introduce myself. If you're a first-time visitor here, my name is PJ Tobian, and I'm a pastor here at the First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower. And we'd like to—we're glad you're here this morning. Thank you for coming and being with us here. Because man must not live on bread alone, but because he must live on every word that comes out of God's mouth. Please open your your Bible to Mark chapter five. I'm going to read to you the whole uh, twenty verses, the first the first section here. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, which is not too different from your translation, and then we will pray and meditate on this text together. Hear then the word of the Lord. Then they came to the other side of the sea, the region of the Gerasenes. Sorry, just to set the context here, if you remember from several weeks ago, Jesus calmed the storm, he he stilled the storm with just a word, and now they're on the other side of the sea, picking up in verse 2. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he kept begging him not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there dressed And in his right mind. And they were afraid. Verse 16. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. But he would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to preach in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that your spirit is here with us. And that your spirit has inspired Mark to write these words. And now he's living in us. preparing to enlighten us and illumine us. We pray, Father, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would not quench him or grieve him, but that we would submit to him as he shows us the glory of Jesus Christ from this text. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. This preaching would be worthless and useless. This listening would be worthless and useless. Even our reading of your word would be worthless and useless if you don't come 
and help us. We are desperate and in need. And so, Father, we are asking you to come as you have come many, many times. Speak to us, transform our hearts, and help us to tremble at your word. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends and neighbors who are here this morning. We pray that you would open their eyes and soften their hearts, that they might receive the word, believe in Jesus Christ, call on him to save them, and be saved. We trust you, and we're leaning on you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage here is the longest passage in the Bible uh, recounting an exorcism where a, a, a demon or a demon oppressing and demonizing someone is taken out of a person. This is the longest passage in the whole Bible. And from here, we can learn many things about demons, fallen angels, and we can see a facet of the glory of Jesus the Messiah here, which is the main point of the whole book of Mark. Right? We're back in, the, in our study of Mark. We're going to go Mark 5 through 10 now for the next few months. And as we look at this, Mark is showing us who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the King. And here we see the kingship and lordship of Jesus in contrast to this legion of demons. Now before we even jump into the story, we need to ask this question, are demons even real? I mean, if you're not a Christian, you might be sitting here this morning and saying, wait, what? Like, people still believe in demons? This is 2015, right? It seems illogical and irrational, unscientific to believe in demons. Right? It, or primitive. Maybe it's just superstitious. Aren't we over these superstitions? Why, why still think that there are demons today? Well, to push the question back on you, on us, why not? Why don't you believe in demons? Well, let, let, me, let me give you a few reasons why, uh, or to, to think about, about demons um, just before we, we jump in. It's only illogical and irrational to believe in demons if you don't believe in, in God. Right? If there's a personal being in the universe whose essence is wholly good and wholly righteous, it's not irrational to believe that there's a spiritual being or spiritual beings that are completely evil, right? That's not irrational if you believe in a, in a, in a God who is spirit. Now, if you don't believe in the God who is spirit, then of course it is irrational to believe in a personal being who's fully evil. It could be irrational. But even the best of atheists, with all their books today, and all the science, and all the technology, um, cannot fully, completely, comprehensively disprove the existence of God. At best, you can be agnostic, where you say, well, maybe there isn't a God, I don't know if he exists. But no one has been able to prove that God does not exist, and if you want to go with the vast majority of the world, of the human population, then there, are, there is a God, or gods, who do exist. Okay, and so um, to say this is so primitive and outdated and um, irrational, that's only if you believe in a step of faith that there is no God, which you have to prove yourself. There's a, another thing to say here. Why is it not primitive or superstitious? Here's why it's not primitive. In a primitive world or in primitive thinking, it's uncomplicated. It's not nuanced, right? And so it, it's, it's immature thinking. The Bible is far from immature in its thinking about human problems. The Bible teaches us that we have problems as human humans because we are physically broken. We are physically broken, we are emotionally broken, we are socially broken, and we are spiritually broken. And everyone in this room and everyone in this world has brokenness in their lives. And usually it's not just one, one aspect. 
It's not just, oh, I'm physically broken. You know, I could have, you know, you could be physically sick. You could have mental illness or you could have something like that. That, that could be physical, chemical imbalance. That's possible. But it can also be emotional. It can also be um, social or your upbringing and influences in that, in that respect. And it can also be spiritual. There can be demons. There is sin. There is guilt. There is shame. And so there is brokenness on all these different levels. And the Bible teaches them all. That's hardly primitive, right? That's hardly immature and unnuanced. Actually, I would say that the Bible has, a, uh, ha- has the best view of the complexity of human nature and human brokenness. Better than any other worldview that you can find. It would be superstitious if we blamed everything on demons. You trip over, you know, you trip in the parking lot, you say, a demon tripped me. And then you, you know, you get an evil thought, you think a demon tempted you. And then someone got mad at you and you say the demon's tempting that person to get mad at me. And everything is a demon. That would be superstitious, right? And it would be naive, but it would also be naive to say that everything is physical, right? That everything is a chemical imbalance. That everything is due to to your physical body being broken down. As if just medication can solve these issues. We know from psychiatry today that medication, though it might be helpful in some ways of treating symptoms, it doesn't eradicate brokenness, does it? No. So it's not merely physical. It's not merely spiritual. It's not merely emotional. It's not merely social. Oftentimes it's a combination of them. And the Bible gives us that. It teaches us that. And if you're going to get good solutions to your problems, you need to get a good diagnosis first. Right? And demons are real. Sure, we can't blame everything on demons, but I would wager here in the West and here in Los Angeles County, we don't, we don't pay attention to demons enough. And their, their activity and action, even in and around our lives. The Bible teaches us that God exists. Now, if you don't know anything about demons, here's a little bit on demons. It's, they were fallen angels. God created angels, all good, before he created the, before he created the earth. And the angels fell a third of them, at least uh, uh, many of them fell, a portion of them fell and rebelled against God. And those are demons today. They are fallen angels. And here's the main idea of the text. Now, let's, as we get into the story, here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea. Jesus reveals himself as the one who has the power to free his people from demons and their demonic activity. Jesus alone has the power to free you and to free us and to free our neighbors from demonic activity and the power they exercise in our lives. No one else but Jesus. And that's what the whole gospel of Mark is, and that's what this story is about. So if you, if, to unpack this, I have three points this morning. Point number one is this. Jesus overpowers demons in his own time. I want you to notice that. Jesus overpowers demons. This is verses 1 through 13. He overpowers demons, but he does it in his own time. Not on our timing, but in his timing. And that's significant. We'll get to that at the end of this point. But let's, let's look at the story again. So you, you saw verses 1 through 13. I read it for you. Let me just summarize the story for you for the sake of time. So they get to the shore, right? They were just in the middle of the night. They went through the, they went through the lake, which is a very big lake. They call it the Sea of Galilee. And so in this huge lake, they were in the middle. The fishermen were panicking. They thought they were going to die in the storm. Jesus calms the storm with a word, peace be still. The disciples are even more scared now because they're in the boat or the boats with a man who can have power over nature. And they say, who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? So they get to the other side of the, of the shore. They're in a Gentile area now. And as they're there, a man with an unclean spirit meets him. 
Right? So this man has, is demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. And this man is a man who lives among the tombs. He lives in the graveyard. He lives in the cemetery. Not all the cemeteries, people buried underground, the majority are actually built on top of ground at the, in this day. You just have a, a family tomb, and then you lay out the body, and then when the body is corrupted and all you have are bones left, you put all the bones in a box, you put it to the side, and the next family member dies, you lay them out until they decay, and so forth. And you have a whole family with boxes of bones in the different tombs. And so here is a man who's living and getting his shelter from nature among the tombs with these dead bodies. This man is defiled by um, God's standards, right? In terms of uncleanness, he's touching dead bodies, he's living in the tombs, he's a Gentile, right? He's possessed by demons. And so you see here, this man, he lives in the tombs. Now this man was strong. It says in verse verses uh, 3 and 4, no one can restrain him. You know, even chains and shackles, he would break them. Who could take on this guy? I mean, we know Jesus does, but, you know, you think of some Bible characters, maybe, maybe, maybe Samson. I wonder how Samson would do against this guy, you know, the strongest man in the Bible, or maybe David with his sling shot, or Elijah calling down fire from heaven, perhaps. Um, but here, no one can restrain this man. They lock him up. They put shackles on his wrists and on his, on his ankles. They chain him up, they bind him, and what does he do? He snaps them like paper, just, just rips it, shreds it. This is supernatural power, and no one can subdue him, it says in verse 4. And then in verse 5 it says, Always, night and day, he was what? Crying out among the tombs. So even if you walk around there, it's freaky, right? I mean, you hear some, some wild person crying out among the tombs, screaming, talking to himself. This is uh, scary, right? And they were scared of him. Not only that, he's cutting himself with stones. I think Luke is the one who tells us in Luke chapter 8 that he was naked. So you got a naked man, right? Living in the tombs, breaking shackles. They can't bind him. He's screaming out. He's talking to himself. We would call him insane today or a lunatic or maybe mentally ill, right? He's talking to himself. Have you ever seen anyone on the street talk to themselves and shout at themselves? This is not just first century, right? You could see this sometimes in the streets. Here he is shouting at himself, shouting out loud, crying out. And he's also cutting himself with stones. He's hurting himself. He's self-destructive, self-inflicted pain, maybe even suicidal. Not uncommon to what we are familiar with even today. And so this man runs to Jesus in verse 6 and he kneels down before Jesus and he begs Jesus to send him into the pigs and not to torture him. Jesus permits the man to go and he goes. And that's, that's verses 1 through 13. Let's think about these, um, these, these events um, in terms of Jesus' identity. Here we see that Jesus, well, what do we get? We get clues about who Jesus is in verse 7. Oh, verse 6. What does this man do when he runs to Jesus? He does what? He kneels. When you kneel before someone, what are you showing about that person? He has power over you, right? He has authority over you. He's the Lord, or he's at least master. He's superior to you. He's supreme over you. So this man, possessed by demons, runs up to Jesus and kneels down, showing that Jesus is in more authority and is superior to him and to the demons. So we see Jesus' authority there. Secondly, look at verse 7. What else do we learn about Jesus here? And And he said to Jesus, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? And then he tells us who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? 
Son of the Most High God. Remember the disciples asked that question on the boat? Who then is this? The demons give the answer. Who is this? The Son of the Most High God. Why, why would the demons know who this is? Weren't they there when he created the world? It says in John 1, 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God and he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Jesus, through the Son, through the Word in John 1, 3. They were there. They were there when the Son of God made the world, when the Father made the world through the Son. They saw it. And they celebrated before they fell. And so here, they recognize Jesus as God, the Son of the Most High God, which means he's powerful over them, right? He's the creator of the world. And they recognize his authority. And not only that, what else do they see about Jesus in verse 7? They say, I beg you before God, don't what? Don't torment me or don't torture me. See that in verse 7? What do we learn about Jesus there? Jesus has the authority to do what to them? To torment them. To torture them. In other words, Jesus is their judge and Jesus is their executioner. Jesus is the one who will torture the people or the demons in hell. In other words, God's wrath. Jesus is the son of the most high God and God is the one who's going to inflict his wrath on demons, right? And Jesus is God. And so they recognize Jesus here as God. Now, it says, um, they're, they're saying, don't torment me. In, in Matthew 8, we have this story in Matthew 8 and in Luke 8 as well. You can read those for your, your homework if you like. In Matthew 8, they say, don't torture, have you come here to torture us before the time? What do you mean before the time? And then in Luke 8, they say, please don't send us into the abyss, the bottomless pit. What is that about? Mark doesn't give us those, but what is that? In, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, we have this, the picture of, of God binding Satan and throwing him into a pit for a thousand years during a millennium. And then in Revelation 20, verse 10, after Satan comes out of the pit, he's going to throw him in the lake of fire where he's going to torment, or torment and torture him forever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, demons are damned. Demons are doomed. They are destined for the abyss and they are destined for torture. And they're begging Jesus, not yet, please, give me more time. Give me more time. That's what they're asking Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. You know the demons would pray to Jesus? They're praying to Jesus here. And that's what they do. Now, why is Jesus at war with demons? Why is God at war with demons? If you remember in Genesis 3.15, Satan, the serpent, tempted Adam and Eve, tempted Eve to do what? To eat the banana, right? I heard someone say apple. We don't know if it's an apple or banana. Eat the fruit, right? To eat the fruit. He tricked Eve. Eve, tri- Eve, Eve deceives Adam, and Adam idolizes his wife and chooses his wife over God. And so, therefore, he eats the fruit, and all of humanity and the creation is plunged into the curse, right? And what does God say to the serpent? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and her offspring, her seed will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Jesus has come to destroy the works of Satan. He has come to crush Satan and all of his demons. All of them. And so this is just an outworking of that war that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. And so we see that Jesus is God. He's superior. He's, he's the judge and executioner. And so we learn here that Jesus has power to free this man from demons, right? What about us? Are we challenged by demons? 
We are. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says this. Before you were a Christian, this was you. Ephesians 2, 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Ephesians 2, 2. You used to walk according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. The spirit now working in the disobedient. You know who you, who you used to live according to before you got saved? The devil. You walked according to his ways. And he is working even now. This spirit is working now in the disobedient. In non-Christians even today. Now, no non, most non-Christians aren't Satanists. They don't have a tattoo that says Satanist on it. And you didn't before you were a Christian. But you were still following his agenda. And his demonic activity. Demons are alive and well and active today in the world. And they were active in your life. And are still active in attacking you today. But before you were a Christian, you were in bondage and enslaved to their ways. And that's what you were before God saved you. If people, Sometimes people say today that they hear voices. You get crazy ideas that come into your mind. Some sinful ideas. Even as Christians, don't you sometimes? Sometimes you get a, a thought that comes way out of left field and you're like, did I just think that? Why? You know, you would be ashamed. We would shudder if we just you know, projected one of those thoughts for everyone. Announce that thought here, right? Some of our thoughts are so evil that, I mean, yes, it could come from our heart. You know, but you know the little caricature of like a devil sitting on one shoulder and an angel sitting on another? You know, it's a caricature in one sense, but that's true to a lot of people's experiences. You know, and I, I would say that even for myself, that I, I think there can be times where, where a demon is specific, you know, is, is intentionally tempting me. I think that's true. I, I think that's what the Bible teaches. Maybe not that he's sitting on your shoulder and he's little, but, but that there's a voice that you get and thoughts and temptations that come into your mind. And so we need Jesus to deliver us the way he delivered them. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to not believe the gospel. Satan is running this world, but Jesus' kingdom has come, and he is taking over. Right? When we say a mighty fortress is our God, he is plundering this, the kingdom of Satan. Right? And so Jesus overpowers the demons and delivers this man in verse 13. Look at verse 13. We see that this man, um, he tells the demons to go. And in verse 15, this man is clothed and in his right mind. So Jesus actually delivered this person. And did Jesus deliver you? Does he deliver Christians? Yeah, in Ephesians 2, it said we were walking according to the demons of this world or to the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. How did God save us from Satan and walking in this world? He united you to Jesus. And when you're united to Jesus, he doesn't become dead. You become alive. And that's how he freed you. From Satan's power. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, When he blinded our eyes, God says, Let there be light. And that's how you became a Christian, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God said, Let light shine in the darkness in our hearts. When Satan was blinding us, he freed us. And so we needed Jesus to save us. And we still need Jesus today. Doesn't James 4, 6 through 8 say this? Therefore God says, resist, God, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God... Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. He will flee from you. Not because you resist him first, but submit to God. You submit your life to God. You give up your sin and trust in God. Then you resist the devil. And then he will what? Flee from you. And then he says right after that in, in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded people. We are in a spiritual war. 
If you're not a Christian, you are under Satan's sway, and God needs to free you, and you need to be freed by God. You need to submit to God and resist the devil. Christians, doesn't Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 say, put on the full armor of God? Because we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual powers, right? That's our war. We're not at war with each other. We're not at war with non-Christians. We're at war with the demons who are influencing non-Christians and even Christians to sin and reject God. We're trying to free people, right? We're trying to free captives as, as, as we were freed. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. Are some of you struggling with certain sins in your life? Well, I should say you are. You are struggling with certain sins in your life. And do you feel discouraged like there are some sins in, sin patterns in your life that you'll never break? Just like, well, this is just me. This is just my personality. I can't break this sin in my life. Not true. Not true. Jesus has power over Satan. He has power over demonic influence and over sin in our lives. And he can break us free from the sin in our lives. Brothers, sisters, there's hope for you. We have hope because we don't hope in ourselves. We hope in Jesus who has power over Satan, sin, and death. But then look at, look at, verse, look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 here. This is, this is going to set up our next two points, which are far shorter and more application. But look at verse 8 here. Oh, verse 7 says, verse 7 gives their prayer request. And what's their, what, what are they begging Jesus? To not what? Don't torment me or torture me. Now, why did they ask Jesus to do that? Look at verse 8. This is curious to me. For Jesus had what? Jesus had told them what? Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Why is this guy begging Jesus? Okay, think about this. Why is he begging Jesus to not torture him? Because Jesus said what? To the, to the demon. Come out. Now listen, Jesus told him to come out. Did he come out right away? No. There's a conversation that ensues. Which I find very strange. Because in the, just in the, in the story, right before this, what does Jesus say to the wind and the sea? Peace, be still, and what happens? Immediately, nature obeys. Can Jesus command a demon and they obey immediately? Yes. He could have done that, but he didn't, which I think is just curious, right? Why? Why, why say, come out of him and not force him out? Because his word is so powerful. He just says, let there be light and there's light. Let the waters be separated from the waters. Whatever God says, it happens when he wants it to happen. At the same time, sometimes God says things and doesn't enforce the effect of it immediately, which is preaching ministry in the church, by the way. But, um, but, but sometimes God does that. And the question is, why? Why not force the demon out right away? Because what is, what is the demon going to do? You know the story. I just told you the story. What, what is the demon going to do? The demons. They're going to go into the what? Pigs or the swine. The swine are going to do what? Jump into the sea and drown. The people are going to come and hear that the swine are drowning or drowned. And what are they going to tell Jesus? To leave. If Jesus just would have said, get out of him, they leave, none of this would have happened. Swine would have been preserved. They wouldn't have told him to leave. He would have stayed there and done whatever he was planning to do. Maybe if he was planning to do something else at the time, he would have done all that. But because he had a conversation with the demon and did not force him out right away, all these other things happened. So here's my question. Why did he let all of this happen? Which is a smaller question of the bigger question, which is, why does God allow Satan in the world today? Can God get rid of Satan today? Can God, can God get rid of all the sin in the world today? Can God get rid of all the sin in your life today? Yes. 
But has he? No. And the question is, why? Why not? Why not? Now, I think in this passage, we have two answers. I think there's a lot of different answers to this question. If you want to have a theological discussion about it, I'm happy to have it at the door or some other time. But let's just get the two clues. There's two pieces to the answer. I don't think the Bible gives a full answer, but it gives two pieces here. And I think these are the two biggest pieces here. So these are point two and point three of our sermon today, and it's all application. Look at verses 14 to 17. So the men who tended the, the, the pigs, they ran off and they reported it in the town and the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion, sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 16. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told him about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Okay, so the pig herders, imagine if you're taking care of pigs, and they're not just your pigs. There's how many pigs here at least? 2,000. These are not your pigs only. This is like the town's pig pen, right? You hire some, you outsource some pig herders to take care of your pigs, but this is part of your industry. This is part of your economy. This is part of your life and your wealth, in that time. So there's the town's pigs, or at least some of the town's pigs, taken care of by the pig herders that were hired. Pigs launch off as the demons um, enter into them, as legion enters into them. They run off into the sea. They all die. The pig herders get freaked out. They run back to the town. They tell the town what went on. Everyone wants to see this. They come back. They're amazed at what happened. They look at, at this naked guy who's been run around, running around terrorizing people. By the way, he was terrorizing people. It says in Luke or Matthew that he was, doing, he was being very violent towards people. And that's why they bound him, okay? And, I, and isolated him. So here's, here's, um, here's so, so they come and they see this man and they're talking to him and he's completely normal. They can have a conversation with him. He's just, he looks like, it's like night and day. And what are they? They're amazed. Not only are they amazed, they start to get scared. They get scared, they're afraid, and then they send Jesus away. Now, there's two questions there. Why were they afraid? I mean, wouldn't they be relieved? Right? Now your kids can walk through the tombs without naked, screaming guy with cuts on his arms chasing your kids away. Right? Now they could play hide-and-seek in the, in the cemetery again, as, as some kids have done in previous generations. Right? Wouldn't they be relieved? Why are they, why are they afraid now? They were afraid of this guy, and now they're even more afraid that this guy's okay? Hmm. Maybe their fear is tied to the next question. In verse 17, what did they begin to do? What, what were they begging Jesus? Not just once. They were very passionately, insistently, stubbornly um, resolved to, to beg Jesus to what? Leave. Why? Why do they want Jesus to leave? Now, I think why they're scared and why they want Jesus to leave is the same. The answer to both of those questions are tied together. Now, here's what I think. Why did they want Jesus to leave? Because they just lost 2,000 pigs. They just lost 2,000 pigs. Now, these 2,000 pigs were, like I said, owned probably by the community. And here, this was their economy. This was their wealth. They just lost money. Lots of money. They were crippled financially now. Because Jesus freed this man from demonic oppression from a legion of demons. And they were afraid. They, were, they wanted him out of there because now he's a threat to their livelihood. 
He's a threat to their economy. He's a threat to their wealth. And so they choose money and economic prosperity over who? Over Jesus. They didn't even care about the restored man. This is one of their neighbors, right? This guy grew up with them probably. They knew who he was. They saw him grow up as a child. They don't even care that he's okay. All they care about is their money, their prosperity, their possessions. This is what we call materialism. As D.A. Carson says, they chose pigs over people and swine over the Savior. Why were they afraid? Why did they send him out? Here's why. Because Jesus is a threat to their gods. He's a threat to their idols. He's a threat to what they value most. And because they valued their livelihood, Jesus was a threat to that. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. And you know what? It's the same thing today, isn't it? Jesus is a threat. He was a threat to their comfort, their whole way of life. If Jesus has the power to, to cast demons out, that changes everything about their, even their religion, right? They were comfortable with their religion. They don't want a new teaching about God. I'm comfortable with my religion. I'm comfortable with my wealth. I'm comfortable with my possessions. If you want to fit in other parts of my life, Jesus, go right ahead. But if you want to up, you know, uproot everything and flip everything upside down and take control of my finances and take control of my religion and take control of my life, no thank you. Please leave. Please leave. I'm begging you, Jesus, leave. That's what they were doing. And that's what we do. Jesus is a threat to our self-centeredness. Jesus is a threat to our selfishness. Jesus is a threat to our pride. And Jesus is a threat to our sin. And when we want to protect our self-centeredness and our pride and what we value most or more over Jesus, it's either him or your money. You cannot serve two masters. And they understood that. And so they beg him to leave. Jesus is a threat, the biggest threat to our lives. He's come to deliver us. It's like he's trying to free a, a, a drug addict from his drugs. But the druggie loves his drugs too much that though, he, though no one's forcing him to take the drugs from his own enslavement and addiction, he cannot see life without his drugs and without his high. And that's how we are in our sin. It might not be drugs. It could be your possessions. It could be your relationships. It could be your agenda. It could be your popularity. It could be your, your business. It could be your education. What are you living for? It becomes a drug. It becomes an addiction. Now, as I was reading this, I don't want to just preach to you. I wanted this to preach to me. So I started thinking, Lord, what are some things in my life where I'm telling you to get out of my life? Maybe I'm just telling you to get out of my whole life. But sometimes when it's time to put my kids to bed and I'm tired or I have something else I want to do, I'm hesitant to put them to sleep and put them down because they're getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. So Jesus, get out of my life right now. I don't want to be a good dad. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Why are you bugging me right now to have to love my kids and put them to bed? And yet Jesus is here interrupting our lives and interrupting our self-centeredness and interrupting our selfishness. And we have to choose, don't we? We have to choose. Are we going to submit to Jesus? Or are we going to give in to our idolatry and our own agenda and our own tasks? So ask this of yourself. What are you scared of losing if you fully follow Jesus? I'm going to say fully there. What are you scared of losing if you fully follow Jesus? What areas or things in your life do you have where you beg Jesus to leave? Maybe you're not saying it explicitly because you're a good Christian, right? You're not saying Jesus leave. But you're not ready to give it up. 
And Jesus wants it. And you know he wants it. Give it up. Where in your life are you ignoring him and disregarding his lordship? Where are you hiding things from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Here, if you're like, I don't know what it is. Where are you hiding things from your brothers and sisters in Christ who would hold you accountable if you did share it? And you know Jesus wants you to share that burden and confess that sin, but you don't want to do it. You want to hide it and control your life and control this compartment of your life and not let anyone else in. Idolatry. And Jesus is saying, you choose me or you choose your idol. You can't have both. And they beg Jesus to leave because they chose their idolatry over Jesus. And I'm begging you, the way they're begging Jesus to leave, I'm begging you to keep Jesus central in your life. I'm calling you, Jesus is calling you, to put him above your would-be idols that you've found yourself enslaved to. It turns out that this man who was possessed by demons wasn't the only one being ran by demons, right? This whole town was. Just because they're not screaming out naked and crying out and inflicting themselves with wounds doesn't mean they're not affected by Satan. These people too were enslaved. And so you might be. Okay, so that's the second thing we learn here is that Jesus exposes our idolatry. So if you're taking notes, point number one was Jesus overpowers Satan or overpowers demons in his own time. Point number two is Jesus exposes our idolatry. So here's the question. Here's this, this part one to my, my question. Why doesn't Jesus get rid of all of our sin right away? Why doesn't he get rid of demons all right away? Why not? What does he want to expose in us? Our what? Our idolatry. Because Jesus wants to transform us and, and, and change us so that we love God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And without the struggle, and without sin running free in this world, we wouldn't be able to have our idolatry exposed and have the chance and opportunity to repent from our idolatry. And that's one reason why he allows demons to run free and go into the pigs rather than take them out right away. Second reason, which is our third point, why, why not take them out right away? Look at verses 18 through 20, last part of our, of our passage here, verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat... The man who had been demon-possessed, it says in verse 18, kept begging him to be with him, verse 19, but he would not let him. Instead, he told him, what did he tell him to do? What's the first word there? Go. What does that sound like? The Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples. Right. Go. Okay. Go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. So here's the third point. Jesus commissions his vessels of mercy, his messengers of mercy, if you like. Jesus commissions, he sends his messengers of mercy, his ministers of mercy, or his vessels of mercy. That's what he does here. So so Jesus complied with the town's request. They said, please leave, and Jesus grants their request. And then the demonized man begs Jesus to be with him. Please let me go with you. Let me go with these 12. Let me, let me follow you. I just want to be with you. Can you is, is that understandable? Can you sympathize with the man? Right? You've been demonized for how long? Ten years? Three years? Five years? You've, you've thought these crazy thoughts where you just wanted to kill yourself. And now you're free. And now you're thinking clearly. And now you feel safe. And the man who, who gave you that safety is saying, go home and don't, don't go with me. And you're saying, no, no, please. I want safety. Let me be with you. And yet Jesus pushes him into the risk-taking world 
where there is a little bit of safety because God is in control, but a lot of danger, right? Just like our lives. Missionaries, whether you're a missionary in Los Angeles County or you're a missionary in the Middle East, there's risk to living in this world. And he sends. He sends them to, he sends them to go. So the man begs Jesus. Jesus refuses. Now that's strange that Jesus refuses this, right? I mean, there are three people who requested things from Jesus. The demons requested something from Jesus. Did, did Jesus say yes or no? They want to go to the pigs. Did Jesus grant them their request? Yes or no? Yes. Then the people begged Jesus to leave. Did Jesus grant their request? Yes. Then the man who actually loves Jesus and trusts in Jesus wants to stay with Jesus. And does Jesus grant his request? No. That's kind of strange. The two people who are opposed, the two groups that are opposed to you, you're saying yes to their prayer request. And to the, the one who's following you, you actually say no. Does that feel like your own Christian life sometimes? Like, God, why are you saying no to my, Christian, my prayer request, but you're saying yes to their prayer request? Now, we trust that God has a good plan, doesn't he? Isn't God wise and loving? Doesn't he know what's best for us? Aren't his no's when he says no to us? Isn't that a sweet no? It is. And here, why is he saying no? Because he's telling him, to, he's commissioning him to go and tell his story. It says in verse, verse 19, go back to your own people, your family and friends, your neighbors, and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he was to go and tell what? His story. People knew him, but they didn't know the latest update. Give them the latest update on your life because this is a huge update, right? Give them the update, put that new post on Facebook and let people know how you're doing. He was to tell his family and friends who didn't know his story yet. But they would. Because it says that he went out and he told all these people and they were all amazed in verse 20. Now he wasn't just to tell them his own story and what he experienced. He was to tell them about who in verse 19. Go back to your own people and report to them how much, what? The Lord has done for you. And how, how he has had mercy on you. So go back and tell your story. But who's the main character of your story? The Lord Jesus is, right? And what, what's the main thing the Lord Jesus did? He had mercy on you. you. You were unclean. You were isolated from people. You were demonized. You were, you were condemned and damned to hell. And God had mercy on you. Go tell your family and friends about the Lord and what he did and how he had mercy on you. Now, our story is like his story. But we know more than this man did, don't we? Now, how's our story like his? I remember I read to Ephesians 2, verse 2, where it says, where it says, um, we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now working in the disobedient. So that was us. We were oppressed by Satan. We were blinded from the gospel. We walked in our sin and selfishness. We were in bondage and enslaved. And any kind of moral restraints or trying attempts to do good and be religious, those little chains that were on us, Man, our sin, in our sinfulness, we just broke those, right? Have you ever tried to just say, I'm never going to lie again, and then you fall into that sin again as a kid? I'm just going to not do it anymore. You put this chain around you, right? I got this. And then poof, you snap it off like it's nothing. And that's, that's just like this demon did with, this demonized man did with, with real chains. Now, God, we know our sin. We need to know our story. We need to know, you need to know your sin and how God saved you from your stupidity. Your selfishness, your sin, your shame, your sorrow, and how he delivered us. This is why your story, by the way, this is why it's good to tell your story. 
Because who do you get to pray? Who do you get to exalt and glorify? Jesus. Now, God. Now, part of the reason we hesitate to tell our story is because we're scared to share our, our shame, right? We don't want to share our sin, so we want to just be general. Yeah, when I was younger, God saved me from my sin. Praise the Lord. Ah, that kind of gives glory to God. But if you were more specific with your sin, when I was in high school, I was in bondage to this sin, and I was struggling with this, and I couldn't break free. And then Jesus came and broke me free. He saved me. He cleansed me. Does that have more power to it? When you actually, and then I didn't even name a specific sin. You could say, when I was in bondage to pornography, or sexual immorality, or to drugs, or to... Or to pride, or or to straight A's, and I had to get everything perfect because I wanted to be number one in my class, and I wanted to be exalted in this way, and I was trapped by my own prestige and my own desire for power and and acclaim and fame, and Jesus saved me. He broke those chains. That's powerful. Tell your story. That's what Jesus is telling this man. Tell your specific story of your specific bondage and how the Lord specifically had mercy on you. Do people know your story? Do they know your specific story, your story, and how the the Lord had mercy on you? And we know more than this man did because this man, Jesus didn't even go to the cross yet, right? How does Jesus free us from our sin? How does he free us from slavery to Satan? Here's how. Jesus was isolated from society. Jesus was cut off from society. He was overpowered by the demonic agenda, wasn't he? This man was isolated, this demonized man. He was isolated. He was cast off from society. He was overpowered by demonic agenda. And he was wounded with small stones. And wasn't Jesus? He was cast off on the cross. Wasn't he naked? How did he put clothes on this man? He was naked on the cross. He would be isolated. He would be cut off from society. He would be overpowered by the demonic agenda. Now, it was also God's plan, but didn't Satan possess Judas to do this whole thing? Didn't Satan want Jesus to go to the cross? Jesus submitted himself to the Father's plan, but even to the demonic agenda, and he let the enemy do their worst to him. He was wounded by small stones as well. The small stones that are on a Roman whip. When he was lashed 39 times. He was left there naked, crying out on a cross, living among the dead. Didn't Jesus go into a tomb? Didn't he have to be among the dead for three days? Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? He did it. He took this man's place so that we would receive a place among his people, so that we would be victorious over demonic oppression and their agenda, and so that we would be delivered from eternal death into life. Why can you be free? From demons and their power? Because Jesus took your place. Amen? We have a great Savior. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just want to plead with you. We have good news for you this morning. Jesus came to die in your place to free you from your sin and your your secrecy. He came to deliver you from your sin and your secrecy. You don't have to be in bondage to it anymore. You don't have to hide in your shame. You don't have to hide under, under these things. You can be free and forgiven because Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. Here's the good news. God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. Right? Christians, don't you agree with that? God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. You don't have to look to other things to satisfy you. You don't have to look to your money or possessions or your friends or your family ultimately or even to your church ultimately. God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. Christian, 
What should we do? We should rest in our Savior's substitution for us. Let's drink afresh of the cup of mercy today. Just like this man couldn't be with Jesus, we're not with Jesus. Didn't Paul say to be, um, doesn't he say in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Because it's far better to be with Christ. But I'm still here for who? For you. I don't want to be with you, Paul says, sort of, right? He's like, not that I don't love you. I'd rather be with Jesus. It's safer there, isn't it? But why am I still in this world with these burdens and these responsibilities and these neighbors and this church? Why? Because Jesus has a plan for me. He's commissioning me to go and tell people about his mercy. So I want you to have specific names in your mind. Who of your family and friends don't know the story of God's mercy in your life? You have an obligation and you have a privilege. What a privilege that you get to share your story exalting Jesus to your friends and neighbors. Do you want to do that? God's calling you to do that. And that is your privilege. This week, this week, tell your story of God's mercy to someone who hasn't heard it yet. And as a church, this is our mission, isn't it? Why do we exist as a church? To make disciples. That's why we exist. To make Christ known. To spread the gospel. To tell people about the mercy of Jesus Christ. And look at this man in verse 20. Again, as we close, verse 20 says, So he went out and began to what? In verse 20, what did this man do? Proclaim. You know what that word is in the Greek? Preach. When we think of preaching, what do we think of? Think of a pulpit, you think of Sunday, you think of people sitting down. That is not preaching in the Bible. That's not the only way of preaching in the Bible. When you tell people the gospel and you tell them your story about God's mercy in your life, you are a preacher. Did you know that? You're a preacher. You're a preacher. You ought to be a preacher. And if you're not preaching Christ, you're preaching something else. You're preaching that maybe you could, you could do without God. All of us are preachers. The question is, what are we preaching? And are we preaching the mercy of God to our family and friends and neighbors? So again, to summarize, the big question is, why does God allow demons to run free? Here. Why does he do it? Two reasons. Number one, to expose our idolatry. Right? To expose our selfishness and idolatry. Secondly, why does he allow demons to run free? To commission us to speak of God's mercy to other people. And that's what we'll do because Jesus has freed us and we will keep hoping in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus because we are all bound and enslaved to sin and to Satan and to death were it not for grace. And so we agree with the songwriter who said, were it not for grace, I tell you where I would be. Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with our salvation, with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go, the battles I would face, forever running but losing the race, were it not for grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends here that they would repent from their sins and trust in Jesus and call out to him this morning. We pray for our Christian brothers and sisters here that we would feel your mercy afresh, feel the freedom, the lack of chains, that we would feel that freedom afresh this morning. And even now, we would rejoice and be planning and plotting and excited and enthusiastic to tell others the story of the mercy you had on us. And Father, we pray that you'd keep having mercy on us as we keep seeking your face and as we keep trusting your son. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.